Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, all the uh, the uh, Christmas specials are coming up now. And the other night, I'm not going to lie, I was I was feeling sick, uh, I think from Thanksgiving and the eating and the drinking. And on Saturday, I, was, I, felt, I felt awful. And I ended up watching the Grumpy Cat Christmas special. And me and Joanne were hanging out. And I said, you know what? She didn't want to watch it. I said, you know, we watch your stuff. I don't want to watch it. And I'm going to tell you, it, it wasn't bad. I hate to say it. People were like, oh, you're an idiot. You thought it was funny. It was so dumb that it was funny. And you have to sit there and you have to look at something. And it was sort of like a, on the Home Alone premise. But it's great because they were actually mocking. Like the grumpy cat was mocking how bad the movie was. And something like that you have to love. So watch your Christmas specials. You know, you got to watch some of the special ones. I mean, Charlie Brown Christmas is amazing. A Christmas Story, such a great movie. You just got to watch that and, and get into the spirit because, you know, it's, uh, it's the holidays. So I'm going to go out and get my Christmas tree as soon as it stops raining. Probably I'll get it on Thursday and I'll be ready to, to party for Christmas. And uh, and I am not going to be back east this Christmas like I was two years ago. But uh, my guest is a back east Philadelphia area guy. It's Steve Simone. How are you doing, Steve? How are you, buddy? Now, now are, you, are you going back this year for Christmas? I am planning on it. So I hope so. So you were, I mean, have you booked a flight yet? No. <laughs> Virgin had a sale two days ago. Because I, I don't know if you know this. I was, I was um, bi-coastal for... Uh, Two years of the That's year. my dream. Because well, my girlfriend was, I went to college with this long story, but we started dating and I would go back, uh, I would record my show, I'd go back for like for a week. <sighs> and it was great. But the thing is, what I notice is when you go back, like I want to, I haven't gone back since then because I'm like, she's not moving out. I mean, I went back 20 times in two years. So I'm wow. like, you sit there and you go crazy. I mean, how often do you get back? About three, two, three times a year. As any time I can is the answer. Now, when when do you? Because you know we're out here; it's always warm. When do you like to get out there? I mean, because the winter. I mean, I noticed this because not going out there back there forever. When I went back two winters ago, and it's it, brutal. It, and this was one that was like a milder winter. Okay, and it, but. It was still like because we live out here. You we get spoiled. Yeah, you we're hundred percent spoiled. You don't wear gloves. I, no, I forgot how to put like a glove on. Yeah, for yeah. real. I, 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 yeah, or an ice scraper. You're like, right. what? I have to chisel <laughs> ice off my car to get it to go. Remember that shit you had to spray in. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so now you're gonna go. You know, your family's all back. Now, I, I met, I met you through Joe Matteris. I love Matteris. It was at the Artie Lang show. I think was that the first time I remember. I think Joe introduced us actually at the Comedy Store one night. No, because I, I never really, I never really go to the Comedy Store. It was I, one I, night in the back hallway. I remember specifically. I don't know, but no, years ago. Were, were you with your brother? No, you might. I, I, I may have been. Went to Temple. At, yeah, that was my brother at the Artie Lang show, and he's a dentist. Yes, and he had my friend Mark Esposito's father at Temple. That's why I remember that. That's okay. his, what a small world. And now you're from. I know you're you're from where exactly? Delaware County. Okay, which are Springfield or Media? Okay, Media. There used to be a, there used to be a Comedy Works in Media years ago, back in like 1990. There was or 89. There was a Comedy Works in Media. It was on the on the main road in one of the hotels. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. So now now you uh. You go back east. Now, when, when do you plan to go back east? When, when's the times you like to go? Honestly, the answer is whenever I can, because I, I, I love it there. That's home. Um, I was fortunate this year. I was just back in October because I was doing shows in D.C. for the Navy. So I try to plan my stand-up comedy gigs around visiting home. Like, if I can get a ticket, somebody's going to pay for the plane ticket. I'm going to see what I can do to either take a train to Philly. Like, usually every – this is the first Christmas I haven't – done uh caroline to new york with steve ranazizi from the tv show the league right so normally he would we would do it the week before christmas he did it the week after thanksgiving or week before thanksgiving this year but normally i'd go to new york do shows and then take the train back to philly and that would be my holiday and then this year ranazizi did helium in june so i was home for that and then i was home 
in October, and I was home one other time. See, it's good. It's just a different thing in the food that we were talking. He's wearing a shirt from Wawa, and it's so funny. I, I just I saw something on uh, online. They have, I guess, it's a uh, a Wawa Pez dispenser. That's a Wawa truck. Oh, that's fantastic. Which it's weird because I, I have an old shirt. Uh, it's a Wawa Hoagie Fest tie dye shirt. My brother got me one of those, and I think he took it with him. It's cool because it's it, like people don't know what Wawa is, so it's cool. So, so you grew up in a in the media. Now, as a kid, were you funny? I mean, I mean, how did you end up starting to do comedy? Because, I, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but you're uh, you're younger. I'm than I'm 41. Children. Okay, so I'm I'm 51, so I'm 10 years older than you. So, but I mean, so you, I mean, I had left there, uh, Philly. You know, when I was I don't know, 29 or whatever. But now, were you a funny kid or I mean? Yeah, I pretty much was a funny kid. I come from like one of those families that's just funny. Like, you know, when you're growing up, there's families where you go, oh, that's the sports family. And right. the kids are all good at sports. Then there's the families where like the kids are all tough. And then there's the families like where the kids are all smart. We were all funny. And uh, I grew up in a, uh, my grandmother lived with us. So there was always three boys. I have two brothers. Uh, my grandmother was in the house. Like every night at the dinner table was chaos. It was nonstop laughs. And I think that's really where, how I learned how to be funny was around the dinner table. Like to me, my older brother's the funniest dude I've ever met. See, that's funny. And I think it's, it's weird. I think back East, uh, growing up back East, I think you, there's more of a family dynamic and it's For just sure. something that, and I think, well, you're Italian, I'm guessing. Yeah. Italian and Irish. Okay. So, I mean, it's different. Like I was, you know, English, German, Austrian, Yugoslavian, but what people don't get is, you know, back East, there's a lot of segregated neighborhoods, you know, like yeah. in Philadelphia, there's fish down used to be Polish. Now it's hipster and that's South that's so Philly, true. it's all Italian. Yeah. And I think you get that the families back there, they have, it's generation upon generation. They just have that dynamic, which I don't think you get out, out mm -hmm. here. I don't think in California you get that. There's less of a sense of community out here too. Like it's not like when you don't have that family dynamic. It kind of, people don't even know their neighbors here. It's weird. I live in my building. I don't even like, I see neighbors and they walk by, they don't even say hi. And I'm like, well, screw them. I've been in this building for eight years. Yeah, like, isn't that crazy? It's like, yeah. I mean, I said, I'm used to, you know, when, you know, when I grew up, I mean, on our street, I mean, I, now given I didn't live in an apartment back east, I grew up in a neighborhood. In and that's another thing. Back, back east, everybody had houses. Here, it's like nobody can afford it. Yeah. And there, it was like, we would sit there. And I, I know for us, my parents would open the door. You know, my mom would open the door in the morning. We would run out. And mm -hmm. we would just play ball. It was the most fun ever. And there was every, like, there was the Mickeys. I, I still remember all you remember the all people, the people in your name? Absolutely. Except, except the people without the kids. And oh, that's hysterical. It's a one family because there was no kids. But it's, yeah, I remember every house. And it was just different. And I think also in, in the thing of growing up as in comedy and stuff like that and getting into this business, you know, you were a funny family. But I think a lot of times as a kid, you know, if you grew up with a lot of kids, you had to be funny. Either Absolutely. you had to be great in sports or you had to be funny. You had to have something. Right. And uh, I grew up in a neighborhood where, honestly, I talk about this sometimes, and it doesn't, it makes me, I, I think about it, I go, no, this is the truth. There was probably 10 little boys in my neighborhood for every little girl. So it was chaos. Like the Mary's across the street, there was three boys in that house. There was three boys in the Sarone's house. There was the Deluzios, the DeFermos, like everybody was all boys. And we would go outside, and that's what it was. We'd get into adventures like the Goonies. We'd go exploring in the woods. We'd we had a, a baseball field that you could ride your bike to. We had there was a tennis court 
that they would take the net down. And everybody played street hockey in the tennis court. We did that. We did that. And we used to do that. We used to do it in the uh, in the cul-de-sacs. Uh, the best. And we had neighborhoods like we were we were Crescent Woods, and then Woodcrest was a Jewish neighbor. They were the Jewish mafia. That's and then right. Different teams. And the thing you would meet somewhere and you would play, and I think and you would ride your bike somewhere. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you said about the bikes, a baseball field that was you could ride your bike to. Yeah. Well, people, the younger people, don't understand is when he says a baseball field you can ride your bike to. You probably mean it was like a mile or half mile, but you you could you would. It was you bike would distance. ride your bike. Yeah. Like I say, the happiest I was is when my world was bike distance right. from my <laughs> front door. And I remember like being 11 years old and being like, okay, we can go to Wawa, which is like Philadelphia's version of 7-Eleven. And it was like, you could get baseball cards and a soft pretzel and a chocolate milk and you were good to go. Yeah. It was as happy as See, you were we, ever going to be. We used to walk up to the 7-Eleven because I grew up in Cherry Hill and everyone knows the Cherry Hill Water Tower, which is right near the 7-Eleven. Uh-huh. And it's true. We could ride you. Right. It was bike. You, you didn't have to ask your parents for a ride. Like you, and no. you would, But you would ride your bike for like a mile and a half, but you wouldn't Easily. even notice it. You, you would ride. We used to ride on the Ellisburg Circle, a shopping circle to go to a record store. Now I sit there, I go, man, I, wouldn't even want to, I don't even want to drive there. No, it's crazy. Like one of my favorite things about doing comedy when I'm on the road is that you don't have a car. So you wind up, you're like, oh, there's a mall three quarters of a mile away and you're at staying in some stinky motel and then you and your buddy, you just go walking to the mall and then it makes me feel like I'm a kid again where you're cutting through alleys and parking lots and trying to figure out the fastest way to get to, to get See, to a place. I, I used to know because I live in Burbank and I, I, I can, I'm walking distance to downtown. The best. But there's one bar that's, it's not really walking distance, but if you're walking, you can walk when right. you're sober. When you walk back, it's like, you know, but I would do the same thing. Like you would, you would maneuver, what, what's the shortcut? So you go through an alley, then there'd be like, and you'd always have your friends with you. And this is like older, this is a few years ago. Yeah. And there's like an apartment building being built. So of course you have that one friend, just like as you're a kid who yep. wants to see what's going on. And you're like, dude, you're going to, cops going to come. And you know, when you're eight, or nine going around a empty apartment building not built you can get away with it but when you're our age yeah you're gonna, like a gonna criminal. Say, yeah you're gonna get arrested do you know what's funny that you mentioned cops i remember seeing some documentary or some tv show where the police officers were saying if you want to know what's going on in the neighborhood you just talk to the little kids yeah. they know everything they know all the shortcuts they know where people hide stuff they watch everything so, so now, as a little kid, you're, you're the funny family, and your brother was really funny. And now, yeah. at, at, at what point in your life did you sit there and think, okay, I want to do stand-up? And, I mean, because I think for me, even though there was, and you are a generation after me, like when I, I got out of college, and, and when I did it, I mean, there was a booming, and I, I don't mean, I mean, there was a booming comedy scene. When I, when I started working, there was a Comedy Factory outlet in Philadelphia, the Comedy Works, Going Bananas, and then some other club and then this guy Andy Scarpati comedy cabaret had all the suburbs so for me once I started being a good MC because it yeah. was three man shows I mean I and it was paid work it was different than now you know yeah. MCs got paid and yep. we got paid 50 to 75 a show then yeah, 20 and, years ago yeah and they would sit there and they would look at your calendar and there was like so many clubs in the Philadelphia area I had 35 weekends in the Philadelphia area I mean, that's incredible thing. but so I mean but you missed that beam. How, missed that totally did you even think of going to comedy in high school or, or what, well what? this is what it was I always loved it okay like I my earliest memory of comedy was I was three and I remember my parents dropping me and my brothers off at my grandmother's house 
because they were going to go see Richard Pryor at the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill. The Latin Casino, I still remember. I was so pissed. My older brother got to see Don Rickles, but I was That's too young. And That's he, I couldn't go. Right. And I was three, and I knew I wanted to see Pryor. Okay. I don't know how that makes sense, That's but funny. I remember it. And I remember being a little baby kid and waking up and my dad letting us watch Saturday Night Live. And I remember seeing Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live. I remember seeing Belushi. Um, and then... I really think I was blessed in terms of there was just great comedy made in the 80s. There was great stand-up and there was great comedic films. Oh, yeah. I mean, all those Bill Murray movies, and you think about it, even you think of like The Jerk by Steve Martin. Tremendous. Just, even, you know, and I, I, you know. The cans. He's shooting at the yeah, cans. It's the that, funniest when thing When you ever. watch that now, it still holds up because it's so, it's so dumb. Like, like, if you watch something like Ace Ventura, it's still funny, but for, at the time, stupid, like, slapsticky and stuff, yeah. The Jerk is just, the jerk is timeless. I mean, it's it, absolutely. If you know someone who says, I don't like the jerk, then you know, they you know don't, don't hang not, out with that person. Yeah. An idiot. Yeah. There's, there was just better stuff. Like I think animal house probably kicked it all off and yeah, or, or maybe even blazing saddles. If you want to go back to 73 about this new style of comedy, but then from animal house on it just, I mean, you have all those great John Hughes movies, you have all the work of Harold Ramis. There was just even Savage Steve Holland. You had so many great directors that had right. such a great comedic voice that they, and then so much talent. Like, honestly, I was thinking about this today. John Candy made me laugh more in his cameos in his early in his career than any full movie has in the last 10 years. It was just a better product. Right. So, um, and then I remember watching great stand. Like, I remember Eddie Murphy, Delirious. I was a little kid. My parents were... I funny family cool parents uh they let us watch you know i remember watching delirious i remember watching carlin specials i remember watching robin williams i got to see great stand-up comics in their prime so i had a love for it so when i graduated college i didn't know what to do with my life now what did you go to where did you go you went to loyola? I, went to, I went to loyola in baltimore okay now what did you go as your major marketing so so you got out of high school you said and like i went my degrees in management and a lot of us we all it was and another thing i think back east was get a go, job well, no, when you when you left high school, you went straight. You did you you lived at college? Yeah, yeah, and that was the thing. Like everyone went to four year colleges, absolutely. And you went, and then you come back. And for me, we go to the Jersey Shore in the summer, meet absolutely. my friends. Uh huh. And but you knew, but all of us, it was a thing where you had to go to college. So a lot of us just said eh, marketing, management. It's like you know, it's all it's easy, and you figure it will work. You no matter what you do, you can always depend on something like that. Yeah, like it was important. Like uh, there's a work ethic especially to that Philadelphia region where there really is no matter, and I, I'm saying this complimentary, there's a blue collar work ethic to that oh, yeah. city where it's like, I knew so many guys that put themselves through law school by doing a blue collar job that like the smartest guys ever were always hustling. Like there'd be a lawyer in my neighborhood that had a landscaping business on the side. You know what I mean? Like everybody worked. Well, yeah, and it's also, I think and what I've noticed too is which cracked me up because I was, when I got out of the whole enter entertainment industry, I was in the restaurant stuff and I was a waiter, then I was in marketing and I was in corporate marketing. And, but I noticed that, you know, when I was young, when I, when I was in college, if you had a job, you were never late. I mean, if you, oh, were, never. If, you were, if you were late the second time, you're fired. Absolutely. Here, and it didn't matter how hungover you were. Yeah, it didn't matter went, what you had. You go, I got to work. Yeah. Here, you, I would see, you know, servers, they'd be late like, and I'm in the marketing side, so I, I'm promotion. So I'm not really my gig. Right. But their servers are like 30 times late. And I said to the GM, I go, well, what? And he goes, well, what do you mean? You know, it will be fine. And I book a big party and it's yeah. only be five minutes late. And I go, go home. Well, what? Oh, yeah. I'm only five minutes late. No, no, guess, guess what? What time did I try to be here? Uh, five. Okay. 
are you there at five? No, it's yeah. only, and they get pissed. It's like, no, back east, you would get there 15 minutes before. Right. And and, cause, and if you did it more, because if you did it more you than once. You lost your job. You lost your job. Yeah. And the job was something you wanted. Out here, it's weird. It's like uh, people were almost embarrassed to say they have day jobs. But back east, it's like, no, he's working. He's a hardworking guy. Like right. I, up until I started to get main room spots at the comedy store. And the distinction with the main room versus the the other rooms at the comedy store is that you actually get to split the door with the okay. club. So it's a decent, it's not a lot of money, but it's it's a it's enough money where I was able to quit one of my part time jobs because up until I got main room spots, I was working two stinky shift type minimum wage jobs because I needed a flexible schedule. But the thing was. Like, let's say if I was working the counter at a gym, I was like, oh, okay, I'll get a free gym membership. I'll get to meet interesting people and it's fun and I don't have to wear a tie and it's no stress. But like I would be on the ship, I, I would be scheduled, say, three days at one place. Well, after I was there for two weeks, I was there seven days a week because nobody wanted to work. Right. And as soon as they found, oh, Steve will take your shift. And it's like, what do you, you don't even have a job. I've, you have I've, a job in theory. I've noticed that too, but back when I was a waiter, you know, if I needed money, I knew I could pick up shifts. Absolutely. Because you'd always, I would walk in, because I, I lived, I worked at Gordon Beer, so I could walk up there, and yep. I would walk in, i go, hey, who wants to go home? And always somebody okay, would man. say yes. And, yep. and the funny thing is about the difference is, back east, you would never say this, they, out here, everyone would bitch, they would bitch about, I need money, I'm broke, I'm broke, I'm broke. Oh, you're getting cut, they're going to service, let me, you, I'll go can home. I stay for you? Yeah, and I'm like, it's you're right, it's so crazy like it that. It took me a long time, and I don't want this to come off like angry or bitter or whatever, but it did, I think there's a certain amount of truth to it. This city very much so is a, a playground for what I call rich kids. Yeah. It took me a long time to figure that out, like, uh, like because it's expensive to live here. And then there was kids I knew that never really worked. But they had great apartments, great cars. They were always going out. Well, I think a lot of times, I think it's where parents, a lot of times people, the parents, the kid says they're spoiled and they say to their parents, instead of them going to college, they say, oh, I want to go be an actor or, but I'll take a course. So the parents figure, okay, you know what? Well, we were going to pay for their college anyway. Right. So let's have them go out. Yep. And I've noticed also, yeah, it's just point. people don't, I mean, LA is such a weird thing. I mean, people, you're right. People, it's like people just come out here and like you came out and you ended up doing do comedy. You know, yep. I came out and I was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I was on the West Coast. I had a background in comedy. I ended up falling into this. But a lot of people just come out here and they, they go, they want to be an actor, but then they just get so, they get their restaurant job and they get so sucked up in the restaurant job yeah. that that becomes their life and they don't do anything with acting. Yes, it's tough. That's why I never, uh, I was very conscious of not getting a professional job out here. Because just because of that work ethic, like where you are, that becomes your life. And I knew if I were to, it would have been a much easier journey for me, but I don't know if I'd still be doing comedy 14 years later. I wouldn't be. And I think also my thing would for you would probably be, because you, you love being back east so much. I think for you, it would be, you know, if you're gonna get a regular job, get it back east. See, that's what, yes. And that was also the reason why I had a choice either New York or LA because I pretty, I had been on stage maybe less than 20 times, absolutely less than 20 times before I moved to LA. Okay. Now where did you start? Okay. You graduated college. Yeah. And then you, did you move back to media? Yeah. Well, I stayed in Baltimore for a while. Our house got shot up. <laughs> we were in a very, very bad neighborhood. And I was like, ah, you know what? This, uh, this were you doing comedy in Baltimore at all? I no? did. That was my courage. I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do an open mic. Because I didn't want anybody back in Philly to know. Where'd you go? And make fun of me. Comedy Factory Outlet? No, there was a place called, 
Winchester's on Water Street in Baltimore. Okay. It's a little tiny alley. It was like a couple blocks away from the CFO. Okay. Cause, and it was the only place that had an open mic. So I did that. And then uh, I thought, oh, this is great. Two weeks after my first open mic, I got a door deal at the place. And I was like, I made like 400 bucks in one night. And then I was like, oh, comedy's going to be easy. What and was that was your, probably the most amount of money I made for 12 years. What was your act like when you did those first, the, that first few times on stage? I mean, I mean, you can't, if you're taking a door deal, you're not going to do 30 minutes, even though you think you have you 30. You know what was crazy? Just for whatever reason, my first time on stage, and I've talked to some comedians. I think this is kind of common. Your first time goes great, and I then mean, it gets worse. Everyone. That, that's, that's, that's a known thing. My first time, I was at the Comedy Factory out in Philly, and I had a great set. And then we all, we don't understand. You know, we're young, and we're, you know, because you did when you got out of college. I had yeah. the same. And we sit there, and we think, oh, this is the same thing. This is cake. Like, oh, I'm going to be a weekend regular. And we don't think, like, oh, well, who's headlining next week? Craig Shoemaker, Dom Herrera. Oh, right. we, you know, we could be on their level and we don't get that these guys, how much work they put how into much it work. and how much one crappy, it's not crappy, but one good set at an open mic doesn't make yeah. you a comic because no. there's going to be, there's going to be a bunch of shitty sets. Absolutely. A thousand. I remember going over to Ari Shafir's apartment and he had uh, uh, a poster board on his wall and it said bombs and he had a hundred squares on it and he would write dates in it because Bobby Lee told Ari that you're not a comedian until you bomb a hundred times. That you did. That's part of it. That's part of the process. I, but I had no idea. And I think when you're good out of the gate, I think that's because you, I think in a sense, not to get too philosophical, but in a sense, I think it is that easy. But then you get into your own head and you start to realize that you shouldn't be doing this and how difficult it is. And well, I think I think also I think one thing is when you say when you're good out of the gate. Well, I'm, and this is this is just me. I'm not you know being judgmental because you know I don't I don't really do comedy anymore. But when I do, when I go back east, I would do the clubs there. I'd mm -hmm. feature and do my thirty minute and have fun. Yeah. But I think when you're good when you're good out of the gate, it's sometimes. You you have the talent and you're good, but I also think that eighty five percent of the other people suck. So you yeah. look you look better. Like like you go up if you see crap 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 crap. Right. Even if you're new and you're raw. Right. But you have something different. Something. Not even just different, just something. They're going to laugh. And I think that's what yeah. happens a lot of time when you because when you go to these open mics and now it's even worse. But back in Philly, there was like twenty five acts. You know, and of Oof. course the people would come in, in the middle. You get the slots like the Keith Robinsons and people like that who were right. working acts back. You know, were at the time, and I was like under them. And Todd Glass would come in and those people, right? And they would do their sets, and so they get the crowd. But as you got later, you would see really bad, 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 bad. Yeah. And then if you come on and have some semblance of something. being good, people would go, "It's good." And I think for me, a lot like when I did it, a lot of the comics, the older comics. Notice that they go, hey man, you got to come back. And then yes. I, yeah, I came back and I bombed. They're like, dude, don't worry. There's a guy named George Sharp in Philly. Bless his, uh, he's still alive, but he's a vegetable now. And uh, oh. he, uh, he's the one guy who told me, hey man, you got to come back. And he always said, you know, he would always give me this advice. And I think that's what happens. Like people probably saw you, and they said, yeah, you're eager and you have some talent because yeah. you know when you're there's nothing worse if you're a, if you're, especially if you're hosting like an open mic yeah. and you have eight crappy acts in a row, and then there's some kid you don't even know who he is. And he comes up and you sit there and go, wow, there's something there. That guy's pretty funny. Yeah. So, so you did the Winchester and, and you do, you, you do great. So you come back and you make $400 at the Winchester. Yeah. It was incredible. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then, uh, I guess what I did then was kind of like, I was bringing friends out to see me down there in Baltimore. And then there comes a point where people don't want to see you anymore. And right. It's, it's like selling Girl Scout cookies. It's like, ugh, do I have to buy, <laughs> yeah, do I have to like, buy your kids fundraiser? It's like, yeah, it's like I don't want that. Yeah. 
So uh, I was probably on stage a handful of times down there, like maybe six times. And it was the late 90s, and there wasn't a lot of comedy going on. It was, it was after that boom. So there wasn't anything else. The house gets shot in Baltimore. I moved back in with my parents. And I always, I get, I got bit by that comedy bug. And I think once you get bit by it, it's like an addiction that you can give it up, but you're always thinking about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, I gave it up for a long time. Then I did a bunch of spots. And then I go back and like, I'm doing a storytelling show in a few weeks. But Oh, nice. But it's just, it's, uh, yeah, once you've done it. And when I went back, but then it's like a thing where, I mean, I come from being spoiled. Like, you know, I knew when you were young and you got work, you're doing 15 to 20 minute sets and you come here and you're like do seven minutes and you're like sitting there and you're with, yeah. So, but so you got, so, bit, true. so what did you do? Did you start doing it in Philly then? Cause um, was there any clubs open in Philly then? No, okay. This is what it was. Funny bone maybe? Back, fast forward to like 1999. Okay. Uh, I would try to like, there was like little bar gigs here and there. I remember doing a place in Wilmington, Delaware once, and Jim Norton came in the headline, uh, and I remember that really depressed me, because I was like, oh my God, if this guy's doing a bar in Delaware on a Wednesday night, what shot do I have? Right. This guy killed it, and I got to talk to him, and he was telling me stories about the comedy store and Dice taking him out to lunch. This was before he did Opie and Anthony and all that stuff. I'm like, this dude's awesome. I, I, I used to know him, me, him, and Bobby Levy, and uh, Jim Florentine would know each yeah, other. Yeah, Florentine came down the headline, and I was like, wow, this is... So I did that like three times, and then was that, that a, was, was that a Keith Purnell room? Did he book that? Do you remember? I remember that name. I don't know if he. I think that was Gino Bisconti booked that. Okay. Room. Um, and I I'd do whatever I could, but there wasn't anything to do. There'd be like one of those bar gigs, and then six months later, I'd hear about somebody doing a comedy show, and I'd track down the phone number and get the guy promoting the show and he was like well can you bring your friends and i'm like i'll do wh whatever it takes to get on stage right. i'll do and then i think it was the summer of 99 i started to take the train up to new york and did a couple open mics um there was actually a bringer show i did in new york and i had people from philly drive up wow so i could get stage time and then there, the laugh house on south street i did that open mic like three or four okay times. the laugh house that that was what was the funny bone originally all right. That was the first club I was ever in. Okay. I saw Dom Herrera there. My dad took me in when I was in high school. The it was funny amazing. Bones? Yeah. He used to, when I worked to do it at the Comedy Factory outlet, when that was open, Dom would come home on Thanksgiving. And it was always great to see Dom because the whole crowd would be packed with people who knew him and his, or his family. So he wouldn't really do his act because some. Oh, yell, that's awesome. They go, hey, my aunt. Yeah. And he would just sit there and because Dom's act is just busting balls. And, but he's so funny. But when it, when it comes to like just ripping and busting balls, he's oh, amazing. He's the best in the world. So that was, that was funny. So when you saw the London. dream, I, my comedy dream came true a few years ago when I got to open up for Dom. Uh, the night before Thanksgiving in Philly. At, at Helium? At uh, Helium. Yeah, that how, was great. How long ago was that? Oh nine, maybe. Okay, because two years ago, two years ago, when I was, it was the last time I went back for Thanksgiving was before my girlfriend moved out here. I went to the Chickie and Pete's comedy Philadelphia comedy reunion, mm. which is every night before the last night of Thanksgiving. Don brought me that year. Yeah, okay, and me and I met Matt Reese there because he was the up best. there, and uh, Dom showed up, and that's funny because I I didn't really know Dom. I, I knew just of him. And it's funny because I, I told him I wanted him to go on my show and it never didn't. Finally, he called me to do my show, but then something happened. He didn't, for this, he's he the didn't cancel. But, uh, he really is the but best. yeah, so, so that's cool. So, so you, you're, you're doing the Laugh House, but you're going to New York because that's the only time you get stage time. Yeah, like I was just doing whatever I could. So 
then uh, I came out here for a vacation 14 years ago. It was January, the end of January, beginning of February of the year 2000. And uh, it was freezing and brutal in Philly. And I came out here and it was 75 degrees in January. And I went, oh, I'm, I'm moving here. And everything as a kid, I always wanted to move to California because everything cool came from California. Like it's for me, it started with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Loved that movie. And then like Van Halen was my favorite band. And I loved rap music and all the gangster rap. And I was like, everything cool, surf culture, skateboards, all that stuff started here. And uh, I was like, okay, they don't have winter. I want to do comedy. I don't. I, I didn't realize how crazy it was. But like I said, I was probably on stage maybe twenty times, and I just packed up, moved out here. Didn't know anybody really. Where'd you move? I always, I always, I always ask people. I always ask guests. Where was the first place you lived out here? Because oh, okay. we don't, we don't know the area. And I always say, you know, you don't. It's different. It's different from back east, as we say. You know, I always say this on my show. I say it every week. A neighborhood look. The only way you can tell neighborhoods are bad is if there's signs in different languages or check cashing stores, and that's the only way you know. Oh, yeah, you, oh, you have no idea. Dude, I dropped a buddy of mine off last night in a, a mile away from my house. It looked fine, and uh, he told me three people were killed in the past month, and like right here in the valley. And I'm like, Are you Where do you eight? live? What's, what's I live in Sherman Oaks. This was yeah. like right in Van Nuys. Okay, and I didn't realize how how rough Van Nuys got because like you said, back east, you know you're in a bad neighborhood. You drive by, there's a tenement. Okay, we're not going yeah, There's to, a yeah. hole in the middle of the yeah. street. It's like I grew up in Cherry Hill. Bullet, yeah, there's you, bullet. you go by Camden. Yep. Okay, you know. That's Camden. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, totally crazy. Like, the one thing that did sort of set me up for out here was I won a contest in Philly that Pauly Shore hosted. Okay. And I had already quit my day job. And I was moving out here. I knew that's what I was going to do. But then uh, I won the contest, and Pauly was like, hey, you should be at the comedy store. His road manager gave me his phone number. And then I just drove out here, and there was a buddy of mine from, actually, my younger brother's friend. We had, and he was my friend too, like a guy I knew, but it wasn't like my best friend. It wasn't like my boy. He was living in Santa Monica at the time. Not a bad place to move. Yeah, beautiful. So I uh, had enough money. I spent. I had like a thousand dollars. I left Philly with, and by the time I got to LA, it was like six hundred bucks, and that's all I had. No credit card, no job, no apartment. And I spent $130, $140 on a hotel my first night in town. That always happens. It's like, yeah. I was like, oh, because I didn't realize the same Best Western I stayed at in January was 40 bucks. Now it was the summertime. It was 140 Right. I tried, I tried to stay at one of those stinky motels on the Sunset Strip across from Rock and Roll Ralph's. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it smelled so bad. Like I, the, next to like the Seventh Vale Strip Club. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like straight out of a Guns N' Roses video. And um, I called my buddy the next day. I'm like, dude, I need a... And he was like, all right, you can crash on my couch. So I crashed on his couch, started to make phone calls. Uh, my younger brother had a buddy that was living like in Hermosa Beach or something. He goes, there's a really good pizza place in Santa Monica. I walk into the pizza place and the kid goes, "What are you? where are you from? I go, Philly. He goes, he could tell right away because I had just gotten off the boat from the East Coast. He knew Matt because he played baseball at GW with Matt Arise's brother. Okay. So I kept on going in there to hang out because I'm like, oh, this guy's cool. After a week, he goes, do you want a job? So I'm still crashing on my buddy's couch. I'm delivering pizzas for this guy. And then they wind up finding me an apartment with two of their customers. So I move into a three-bedroom in Santa Monica with two strangers and then that lasts about 10 months. And I move into a, I share a Section 8 apartment. 
in Hollywood before that was gentrified. And then just off to the races, living like an animal. Trying how, to how, did, how did you find a section Asia apartment? How did you find that? My buddy Stevie Z, uh, he's got cerebral palsy. He's one of the first people I met in L.A. He's an Eagles fan, but he's from Portland. But uh, I was doing production assistant work on a Pauly Shore movie, um, an independent movie. So I was making 50 bucks a day for 15-hour days, carrying furniture. It was right. terrible. <laughs> but this kid... Uh, Stevie was a super cool guy, and we used to watch the Eagles games together. And his rent was only like two hundred and fifty bucks a month. So it was I shared a one bedroom, but he gave me the bedroom, and I gave him the two hundred and fifty bucks every month. That's awesome. And that's the only way I was able to survive that first year. So you lived there first year. Now, did you start getting up at the comedy store then? Did because you did you call? Did you follow up on with Paul? Yeah, of contact? course I followed up. Uh, so I started to open mics at the store, but it was a pain in the ass then. They'd put a list out on Saturday night, and you'd have to pay for parking on the Sunset Strip, and you didn't always get a spot. It was a disaster. But uh, I did the PA work for Paulie, and he goes, dude, I'm going to get you a job at the store. And so in January of 2001, that's when I started to answer phones at the comedy store. And that meant I could start getting stage time in L.A., even though it was only three minutes a week. And that's what it was. And then three minutes a week, like you were saying before, you, that, you can't do it. So I would just, I wouldn't even try bits. I would just go up there and talk. And I was like, okay, this is what happened today. And I would, I did that for the first couple of years in comedy. So did you, did, from the, that, did you start getting MC work there? Or I mean, what happened? Well, I got lucky because that was, the club, comedy was still kind of dead then. And the club wasn't, the club is definitely in the middle of a renaissance now. It's amazing. Every room's packed. But back then, there'd be some shows for 10 people on a Wednesday night at the comedy store. Um... But I did, Paulie let me, uh, I started to MC for him out on the road. And then Dice took me under his wing, and Paulie took me under his wing. And I was there, and I was watching it, and I was living comedy. And uh, it was great, but it was really frustrating, too, because you would go out for two weeks, and you'd get two 15-minute spots as an MC every night for two weeks. And you come back, and you're strong, and you have jokes that work. Right. And now, it's, now I was back to three minutes a week because I, I didn't have a car. I would walk to the comedy store two or three miles from my apartment. So I had no car, and then I had no nights off. So I was at the comedy store six, seven nights a week working work there. Right. So, so I couldn't go do a, an open mic at a bar or whatever because I was at the store trying to make money. And at the time, uh, we only got paid $25 a night to work the door. See, that's insane, but it's just, well, that's like when I did, when I worked at Comedy Factory out in Philly, we did it for the same reason because you knew the open mic was a, a pick out of the hat. Yes. But you knew if you were a staff, you got a slot. Absolutely. And that's and why you do it. you got five or you get, you got five in the beginning, but when you started getting better, you get seven. And then when you, when you were a staff member who got work, weekend work at other clubs, you were still, even though you couldn't work at the club anymore because you were getting paid work. Right. You knew when you come to the open mic night, you got a spot, you would get a, you would get slotted and you would get eight minutes. And, that's great. And that, that's when it was think, but that's why we work and we don't get paid. We got paid $5 an hour. Right. But it was like, it was great. Cause we also, the thing is we got to watch great headliners. Absolutely. You sit there and you would watch it. And then, you know, you worked a door and, and it was, I mean, there's not really a lot of idiots in the, I mean, you throw a few hecklers out, but you don't get really idiots in the comedy. Cause especially back then if people were paying, Twenty twenty dollar whatever whatever it was, but right. also in Philadelphia, if someone's heckling, there's someone else in the audience to get them to shut up. Absolutely, that's for sure. 
Yeah, people check each other back there. So you keep you keep doing it. So you're working the door, but you're only getting three minutes. But you're getting some work. So now, when do you start saying, you know, I got to change up and try to, get, you know, because you, you can't get away with just doing three minutes. No. And when you go away on the road, you know, and now you know you, that's great. But when you come back, it's yeah, like, now it's, it was so it was back. beyond frustrating. It was really frustrating process. But then you know you start to get to it took takes it takes time to figure out where the other stages are, where the state, your, your number one com- commodity as a young comic is stage time. And it's difficult to get. And it's difficult to even find out how, who books that room. How do you get into that room? Well, you got to come hang out. So you might have to get to know the booker and hang out two months before you get offered a spot. And it wasn't where there's social media, so you couldn't sit there and hit someone up and send the no. link. It was before it Twitter, thing. it was yeah. before Facebook. Because you don't know, I mean, on Facebook, there's so many shows you get invited and to so many honestly, shows. honestly, this was even before UCB, out. comedy was dead. Okay. The early 2000s, and that was when reality television started to come to the forefront, so there was no more development of comedy. There was no really, I mean, how many really funny movies were made from 2000 to 2010? Right. And even, uh, even there wasn't the... There wasn't the development deal, which I no. missed film of it back then. Everyone back before, like when I mean, when I was doing comedy back east, when people moved out here, they were getting deals right then. Yeah, and not none of them even book stuff. They would get like you know, Jordan Brady tells me how he was given money from one network just so he wouldn't go to another to another network. You know, he wasn't getting anything. From yeah, them, that all said, changed. Yeah. That was like the like the uh, the remnants of uh, of the the model for comedy when I got to LA where people were still working on their seven minute showcase sets because they wanted to get at the time Aspen and Montreal. They wanted to get into a big festival. They wanted to get a development deal. They, I had some friends, I think 2003 was the last, last of that. I heard that, but, and then it, and it was the tonight show was development deal. It was HBO or a comedy central special, but the whole business changed because of social media, because of podcasting, because now it's like, you know, you just get good and you grind it out and somehow you try to figure out how to make a living. So when you sit there, when you, after you were doing the comedy store, when you were doing the sets and working the door, when did you stop working? At I stopped store? working. I started working there in January of 2001. And yeah, even my first couple years in comedy, there obviously, I'm looking back at it now, there wasn't a lot of stage time. So then in 2005, uh, they tried to make the comedy store a little more corporate. And I was just so sick of the fact that I never got passed. Like, I remember, like, that makes no sense. So you don't get passed, but then Dice and Paulie are taking you out to open for him. Yeah, Mitzi so you, broke my balls. Okay. Do you know why or just? Um, I, th- there's a couple different theories. Um, I think she, honestly, I think she was just trying to toughen me up for the business because like there were times on the road out of the MC spot then that, uh, I mean, I remember getting standing ovation back in like 2003 as an MC, like that doesn't happen. Right. And she saw, and I remember Dice telling her, I was working with Andrew and he, he talked to her and Paulie, I mean, I don't know. And I do remember one time, this must've been 2003. 2004 maybe Ari Shafir Steve Ranazizi and myself opened up for Paulie out in uh, Palm Springs and Mitzi was in the room and we killed and I took the bullet because I, I thought she hated me she didn't hate me I wound up being her, I was her personal assistant at the time the stories were crazy but um, she was like look you have a choice she's like you can go out on the road now and get lost and become a nobody or you can listen to me and become a millionaire so she broke our balls. I think we were the last three that she really had her thumb on. 
So you guys, so you're doing that, but then you left working there. Yeah, I left working. I couldn't take it. I was like, you know what? You're not going to pass me. I'm done making that. So I took like a, a job working graveyard shift at a gym in Hollywood because uh, I could walk there and it was a flexible enough job where now my uh, some of my other friends were starting to headline so I could get feature work with them. Um, Mitzi, even though I wasn't a paid uh, performer at her Hollywood club, she'd let me do La Jolla weekends about there was a while there where I was working La Jolla every other month. So uh, I was out on the road, man. I was on the road and working at the gym from like 2005, 2006. I was on the road that year, I think like 40 weeks out of the 52, just between all the different gigs. all the Because di- I was funny enough to be a good feature and I was nice enough where if you wanted me to carry your bags or sell the merch or do whatever it took, right? I would do all that stuff. Now, where were some of the places you were playing, though? Like different, like Indianapolis, different stuff? Everywhere. Or, okay. I, like the Paulie, um, Paulie Shore really did take me under his wing, and I got to see the whole country with him. It was incredible. So you opened for Paulie for a while? Yeah, I opened for Paulie, my buddy. And then 2006, I moved in with a guy by the name of Steve Trevino. Who was, I, know, I know the name. He was working with Mencia. Mencia show blows up. Trevino becomes a headliner. And then he, he was my friend. And he was like, hey, man, you want to let's just get in the car and go. And it was 2006. I think Trevino and I, we did. We lived out of a minivan for nine weeks straight, eight weeks, something like that. We just ran in a mini, minivan and crisscrossed the whole country. And that was 2006 is when I was like, you know what? I'm going to get really personal with my comedy. I'm going to tell long form stories. And I had the idea of that. Because Trevino was like, what you do in the car should be your act on stage. And that's what we did for that, like, eight weeks. And then I came back. And uh, I still didn't get passed at the comedy store until, until 2008. Well, that's funny because you say about the stories. Because I think that's what, you know, I, I had uh, Jeff Stilson on, who Jeff Stilson's, you know, very big act. I mean, he yeah. was and a very, I mean, he was the head writer on the Chris Rock show when the other writers were Wanda, Sarah, Silver, Louis C.K. Yeah, I mean, so, and Jeff was saying the same thing, how, you know, when our generation was, like, Jeff told jokes, and now he watches it at different comics, he goes, wow, he goes, you're like, wait, they're getting off easy, because we, back then, like, in that time frame, you had to get laugh, 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 else you weren't getting rebooked. But now I think- But you know what? There was a great article where I'm going to take, take contention of that, because after Richard Pryor passed away- the Wall Street Journal did an unbelievable article on the craft of stand-up comedy. And they talked about Pryor and Robin Williams' long-form stories. Right. Oh, no, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with the fact that I think stories now is the way to go because it's more personable. But I think so many people wouldn't do them because back then it was such a it was it was a huge bit. Clubs were huge business. And basically, yeah. if you break it down back in that time, if you're playing a comedy club, I don't know if you're in Youngstown, Ohio, or whatever, you're basically your job is you're selling drinks. Absolutely, and, and people want uh, to. You're 100 right. And the thing is, that's why I like for me when I get out of the business, and I mean, I just I score around now, but like I'm I'm writing a book about short stories. Cool. Because it's because this like I would host this my friend's bar. I would do Tuesday nights. No one would show up, but we would just I would just tell stories. That's great. Because that's what like, and that whole like, thing's taking off. Because that's what's funnier. Because you sit there, we're we're sitting there. We everyone has. What's good about stories is I think the youth right now, everything's short attention span, short, short, short. But the older people who are the people who are going to the clubs want to hear. Now they're like, if, especially if they have kids, they see the YouTube, they, 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 this, this. Now if they can go, like, you can talk about your youth and you can tell a story. They go, they love I want to hear this. They I love it. Listen. And you know what I've noticed too? The millennials, the kids love it. 
because that everything is they everything is short little everything's the Twitter now 140 characters and quick videos and quick that but I'm telling you these kids like the hipsters now storytelling shows are even it that's a separate genre from stand-up comedy where like there might not even be a laugh it's just interesting for 10 minutes and it's 22 year old kids that are packing out these rooms like i did a show probably five years ago now in san diego at some cool kid coffee house and they were like uh the kid that booked it was like look man i don't know what we can pay you but you can record a cd there a lot of bands come in we pat we pass a hat around I'm telling you, they were like 18-year-old kids. And I'm going, what am I going to do with 18-year-old kids? And I tried to do my act. And I'm like, and it was coming off too forced, too contrived. And then I just looked at them and I started to tell. Somebody took a picture where they were lined up outside on the sidewalk looking in. It was one of my favorite pictures. Where it was me on stage. And it was all these kids, 22 and under, that were into the stories, that were into that long-form stuff. Because if there's something genuine... I think that's what people are craving. Well, yeah, now. I think that's true. I think, you know, a story, I mean, I tell a story about me getting a, a accident in my Fiero. Well, if I'm sitting Tremendous. There, but people, like, but the thing is, and that's also as where we as a comic or a storyteller comes in where I was at the, my friend's bartender and I asked the bartender, I said, do you even know what a Fiero is? She said, uh-huh. no, but then you have to set it up. So that, that makes you think on your feet. And then that's where a comedy comes in for the fact that when you explain it, yes. you're you're putting a punchline. And even though we consciously don't write this joke, I don't, Absolutely. I don't write and go, okay, they might know what a Fiero is. It comes out. And I think that's what, you know, I think for you, when you started telling stories with Steve, you know, and you grew up in a funny family right. and you probably grew up with me where like when I grew up, when I went to bars with my friends, We'd all bust each other's balls. Absolutely. And if you were the slowest, guess what? You're getting shit all night. All night long. I mean, you you sitting there, it's like, forget it. I mean, I'm yep, legally blind to one eye, and they go, and I just, yeah, whatever, you know, this, this. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll back off from him. Right. So I think that's, I think it's an instinct. And it's, I think, with the, with the, I think it's for any comic who started off like you were doing your act and stuff like that. Yep. It's great because you got that you got that thing where you know you're funny now and you got comfortable. Yeah. So for you probably when he, your buddy Steve said tell the story. Yep. Now, how did you transition to telling your story? Because it's got it's scary when you go up and you're used to your act. But yes. You're going out on a ledge. Yeah. And you know what it was though. But like the act was still it was, it was just the the type of it was a very similar approach. Like I I I was never disciplined enough. Like one of my all-time favorite comedians is Rodney Dangerfield. You want to talk about jokes right. and rapid-fire punchlines? Loved Rodney. I could never do that. that. To me, that was homework. That was too much work. So, like, I'm at the comedy store, and I would just go up for three minutes and talk about what I did that day, or what was funny happening, or an old bit, or one. Let me just work out one bit in three minutes, and then build, get a connection with the audience work out the bit and be like, all right, I guess the light's on now, that sort of thing. But what was different when I say I made to switch to storytelling was instead of me telling stories about like uh, how drunk I was on a Wednesday night, I was like, oh, this is who I was when I was 10 and started to try to introduce my brothers as characters and my dad, my family. Just I guess the focus wasn't as much straight to storytelling, but it was more putting the focus on my family. Well, that's good, because it's also, it's more, and it, you seem like, it seems like you're really just, you're you're talking, and that's the whole thing. Like, you know, I used to always think, you know, in comedy, and I was, you know, the master of this, where I had a bit, 
where I would sit there and I knew someone would say something. I would act like it made me laugh, but it didn't make me laugh, but I'd laugh. I do that fake laugh mm. or you'd act like something just comes off your head. Right. And, and even though it doesn't, you sit there and you, you have a bit where you know there's something. That's the craft, man. And that's when people sit there like with a story. You know, you start talking about your family. Well, then all of a sudden, you, when you're comfortable telling that, then people buy into that because they think you're just talking. And that's, I think, what's great about storytelling right now is you are talking. You're not doing bits because right. the thing is you're telling a story and if they don't like it, tough crap because guess what? This isn't going to be funny, 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 funny. It's going to be a story and you're going to have to wait. And if you don't like the payoff, tough crap. Yeah, and it, it's interesting like because you're starting to see like the moth explode and all these storytelling shows explode, but we're still stand-up comics. Right. So you're still in that club environment and it's like, okay, how am I going to make this interesting and funny until we get to that big payoff? So I don't know. It's fun. Well, now you recently uh, recorded your first CD. Was it your first CD? Yeah, first one. Okay, now what made you decide it's time to record it and where did you pick your venue? I always wonder where people pick the venue they do it, but what did I think you picked the La Jolla? Did La you Jolla Comedy Store. Now, what what made you sit there? Because you've been doing comedy for a long time and you go out on the road and you headline and, and mm-hmm. there's nothing, and then this thing that cracks me up is there's nothing... It doesn't irk me because I really don't care, but it does irk me when I see on Facebook when someone sits who's been doing comedy for like two or three years and they record an album, and because it's so easy to record it, and that yes. pisses me off. It's like no, you don't, you don't deserve. Like when I was doing comedy, you know, only the Stephen Wright and these people got albums, you know, right? But now it's like someone like you or Joe, you know, yeah. or anyone who's been doing it for a while, and you go out and you do headline and you have material you don't yep. you're not one of these people who says i have 40 minutes when you don't right right you right. have the test of time and you've gone through your phases you're great you've gone through metamorphosis yeah so when you go out you're ready but i get irritated when now when i see people record everyone everyone's recording an album right and, and it pisses me off because it's like you're you're watering the system down because you don't headline anywhere you can't do you can't carry a room for 40 minutes yeah i mean so i mean what made you feel the time that you were ready because you're, you're you're old school in your comedy thoughts what yeah. made you sit there and say okay it's time because some of the jokes I really was hoping like I think part of the delusion that gets people to move to LA is that you think there's a guy in the back of the room with a monocle and a cigar and he's the king of show business (laughs) and he's gonna go you're next I'm gonna and I was really hoping that somewhere along the way somehow I didn't realize that I have to create everything that that you have to hustle for everything Um, but I thought like I would love to have shot an hour special and I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. And then I had some of these jokes that it started in 2006 that, I've, that I thought they were really good stuff. Like really, I have this joke about me and my brothers watching Hulk Hogan wrestle. And I was like, that's a great bit. And at one time, that was a 20-minute bit. If I was going to do a feature set for a half an hour or 25 minutes, it essentially would just be that story. But then I put that on the shelf. I got sick of telling it. And then I was like, if... I don't get a chance to record that Hulk Hogan joke or that let's stay awake joke about me and my brother. I go, they're going to be gone forever because they're, I don't really do them anymore. Right, right. And, I, and I don't know who Neil Brennan was quoting, but he told me, he put, gave me the perfect analogy. He said, jokes are like tires that if you run them too much, you're going to lose the tread and they're not, they're going to stop being funny. And I was like, you're absolutely right. So there was some, some material that I wanted to get share with the world before I forgot how to perform it. Right. So a lot, it was a lot of that stuff. So you said, okay, I got to put this on tape. Yeah, and then also, like, my approach to comedy, I tried to record an hour uh, a year earlier because I love La Jolla, and it's, it's, it's wired for CDs, and it's ready to go, and it's a great crowd. But sometimes I just improvise, and I just sort of do jazz up on stage, especially when it's a great crowd. And I went to record a CD, and I went, oh, there's two bits on this and half hour of stuff that was kind of in the moment. 
wasn't necessarily crowd work, but it was just that natural conversational flow. Right. Like this to me is like what comedy should be. It's like we're being both being very honest, yeah. very truthful, and it's just going back and forth. And when you have an audience that's like this, it's magic. Oh yeah, because they they love you and they're laughing. I mean yeah. So so but so you you didn't like your first hour one. No, and I was like because I was like oh my god, it was great. It was one of the best sets I've ever had, and I might just give it out to my fans at some point for free. But there was all these bits that I wanted to share with the world that just weren't on there. So you sit there and you decide, okay, this is time. And you sit there in your mind. You you have to sit there and you have to do those bits. So you yes. go in there. And I think I think what happened when I used to tape stuff too is you, sometimes you get a little nervous because you have that thing in your mind. It has to be good. Absolutely. But it doesn't. And when you force it, which you already know the bits work. Right. So were you nervous when you were starting to do it? I By this point, it was overkill. Because I had been trying to record the stupid thing for a year because you're nervous or like, okay, I'm headlining in Denver and I think, oh, you know what? The recorder didn't work. Or right. the guy, and you know what I mean? Like there was all of that stuff. Or there was rooms where you were like, you're expecting 300 people to be there and you get 120. And even though the show went great, it just doesn't sound the same. Right. Or there was certain bit, and I didn't really want to have to edit much together. And I was starting to think like, maybe I'll just take all the shows I've recorded and cobble them together and do that. So then I go in the La Jolla, Ren is easy, opens up for me, because he goes, we're recording the weekend after the 4th of July, nobody in San Diego wants to go see comedy in the middle of the summer, the weekend after the 4th of July, they moved their first show time from 8.30 to 7 o'clock, I'm like, nobody's going to be here, that's when my boy Ren is easy goes, I'm going to promote the show for you, he goes on Twitter, sells the show out, hot crowd, he, he thinks of, he's also a producer, you know, he's, he, develops tv shows he thinks in ways i don't where he goes i'm just going to go up i'm going to get them hot i'm going to bring you up we'll have the mc go on after you and we'll do the check drop while you're off stage because he goes you don't want to check drop in the right. middle of your cd these are all things i didn't think of so i went out slammed the first hour and i went now the pressure's off that's it i got it i go if that's the my first cd because i've given up on the idea of perfection by the way right yeah you have to you, done and I think that's what real comedy fans want to hear anyway, are those little differences, those little nuances. And then I had three three more shows to just sort of play around with. Now, the CD is called... Remember This. Okay, and now, uh, how'd you come up with the title? Um, there's a bit I close on uh, about just being a little kid and being at the family dinner table. And uh, like I just got this overwhelming feeling that it was you know God or the universe or whatever was like, remember this for when life gets difficult. Remember this for when you get sad. And I'm like, I was like an eight-year-old kid. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. Because I didn't realize how wonderful all that imperfection was of my crazy loud family. And uh, it wasn't until I became a grown-up and I moved out here and LA is a very lonely city. And I started, as I switched my comedy up, by switching my comedy, making it more personal, more about family, more about good times, more positive, um, that started to make me feel good. And that's exactly what I wanted to put on the CD. Give me about five minutes left. Um, I want to talk about your podcast. Now you have a mm -hmm. podcast. It's called Good Times. Yeah. And now, because it came best, it came out. Now, yeah. how did? What made you decide to do a podcast? Um, pretty much because when I switched up my style of comedy, and I made a conscious decision to be positive on stage. I made a conscious decision to give people reasons to keep going forward because i personally was in such a rough spot for a long time and i had to relearn how to live man i had to relearn how to just go it's not about things it's not about money it's not about it's about your relationships and the experiences you have and the little things in life 
are the best things in life. Like if you, I, I had ice cream for breakfast this morning, that's a bit I do, but I legitimately had ice cream for breakfast and I'm like, I'm the king of the world. Right. That's two bucks. It was on sale at Ralph's. I'm having the most fun ever listening to Sinatra, eating ice cream, getting ready to come hang out with you. I'm like, this is it, man. It doesn't matter if I win the lottery or not. I might never have a Ferrari, yeah. but I have the best family. I have the best friends. A good song on the Hall Notes on the radio and Chinese food. I'm good. Right, right. That's and that's all you really need. And uh, that's what I wanted to share with my stand up. Then fans would not fans. People in the audience would come up to me afterwards and they're like, "Oh my God, you reminded me of this time when me and my brother did this, or me and my cousin did this." And I. Before there was a podcast, I was like, how can I get people to share their stories with me and to keep this positive energy going? And that's that's what happened with the podcast. That that medium started to explode. Um, Joe Rogan was one of the first to kill it. He, he sort of brought Ari Shafir under his wing. Then Ari sort of brought me under his wing. Joey Diaz brought me under his wing. And they're like, this is how you do it. And then, thank God, Joey Diaz is uh, producer. Lee Syatt liked me enough. And Joey liked me enough to sort of get me started in the podcast world and see that's good i think because i think also it's the same thing with the albums i think also a lot of people just put podcasts together now and it's good that you were brought under the wing i mean because i mean i came here bare but then also i've learned how to interview i mean i mean i just i coached Yakov smirnoff about interviewing a few weeks ago wow and uh but yeah it's good because your podcast it's it's just you you tell stories and it's going to be the good times and that's good because so many podcasts are just they just people just not talking about anything. It's right. Like, and and, and that's, that gets irritating because it's like, you don't want to hear, you know, you're a host. Like me, I'm the host. I let you guys talk. It's right. my show, but I'm the host. Absolutely. And that's what, because that's why I say I'm only as hip as my guests. I don't want to carry the show. If I wanted to carry the show, I wouldn't have a guest. I, I completely agree. And that's what's, that's what's scary sometimes with this, just with these podcasts. The same thing, it just gets, it gets watered down because there's so, anyone can do it now. And right. there's, there's a lot of crap out there. Yeah. So I mean, but these you got you came on. There's some guys who are, are masters. I mean, yeah, you know, they were great at ideas, and, and they have their following, and, and they they each have their what they do. You know, they do it their own way, but they know what they're doing. Yes, and then I was like, what do I want to do? And honestly, like I've looked back at life in general, and I think any comic really thinks about the big issues, whether we want to come off as silly, whatever. But it's like I just want to put more love into the world and more positive energy out there, and that's it. And I was lucky to uh, be a guest on a bunch of podcasts, and I really enjoyed it. And I and I love the connection with people. I love it. Like I love that's that Twitter podcast Facebook combination where people can listen to you, get an idea of who you are, then reach out to you. It's the coolest thing ever. Oh, it's great! It's great. So uh, we have about two minutes left. Uh, Eagles, Eagles going to win this weekend? Yes, against Seattle. It's gonna that's gonna be a I'm tough scared. test. I thought it was going to be in Seattle, but it's in Philly. Um, Chip Kelly's going to have 10 days to game plan for them. I think it's going to be a battle. Anything can happen. This we'll see. I'm I'm a diehard Philly fan, which means I you got to believe, but you, there's that negative thing. Uh, after the Eagles got blown out by the Reds, but, I'm going to Joanne. I'm going, she's a huge fan. I'm going, ah, oh, they're going to be nine and seven. Yeah, ah, they're go, gonna be, that's it. Yeah, you go, ugh. But uh, I really do. I don't know if this is their year. I Realistically, I... You, with the NFL, you don't know. It's a right. crapshoot. Every week, it looks every team looks different. Green Bay looks unstoppable right now. But, you know, it's the first week of December. If they can stay healthy, get a couple lucky breaks. It's the NFL. People always get injured. And I will say this. I don't know if this is the Eagles' year. Most likely, it's not. 
but Chip Kelly is the guy. Exactly. Chip Kelly will win a Super Bowl in Philadelphia. Okay, we got to wrap up. Uh, give all your give all your info. Your contact. Uh, awesomesteve.com. My podcast is called Good Times, and my new album just came out. It's called Remember This. And do you tweet? A lot? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I just tweet to my friends. Like, I don't like try to think of funny one-liner jokes. But if you reach out, I'll yeah. And what's at Steve Simone? Yeah, at Steve Simone. So people follow him. Go check out his podcast. Um, yeah, and just buy his buy his CD. It's on iTunes, right? Yeah, it's on iTunes. You can buy his CD because you know comedy's good for you. And yeah, he's a positive guy and he tells stories. So yeah, do that. And uh, yeah, so people, you can follow me at Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot of jokes. I like to write jokes. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have uh, about 320 episodes up there. Uh, also, if you go to iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word, uh, Cooper Talk, you can find my episodes. If you have a Google Play phone, tablet, whatever, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk, and once again, you can get my app. It's got my little face on there, and it's for free. You can listen to the shows. Um, iHeartRadio, I only have about seven apps. They're just dragging their feet. But if you go to iHeartRadio, you can find me. And also, no, uh, December 13th is a Saturday at 7.30. I'll be doing the story-worthy storytelling show at the Improv Olympic. No, iOS. Yeah, iOS on Hollywood Boulevard. show starts at 7.30, and it's free. So come out. I'm not sure what story. I'm gonna, I might tell the bathhouse story, which is very funny. Anyway, I want to thank my guest, Steve Simone. Check him out. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend. Talk to you next week.